0: First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Beginning in verse 13. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seats. As you know, Christmas is over and the new year is upon us. All the gifts have been opened, diets have already been broken, and most of us have returned to work after a much-needed holiday break. Advent, beloved, has come and gone, sort of. What do I mean? Christmas is over and therefore Advent is over, right? Well, not exactly. Remember, when we reflect upon Advent, we are reflecting upon twin truths. First, recall, Advent comes from a Latin word meaning coming or arrival. So Advent is the coming of Christ to earth. And then second, Advent is about God keeping His promises, which of course is altogether wrapped up in Christ coming to earth. So hear this, Advent is about coming and promise. Coming and promise. And of course, that is exactly what we have seen over the course of the month of December. right? Advent is the celebration of God keeping His promises by the coming of Christ, He who is prophet, priest, king, and God Himself to which you might give a a hearty amen. But again, Advent is over. How can I say sort of? Because, beloved, Advent has two eyes. With one, it looks backward to the Advent of Christ. But with the other, it looks forward to the Advent of Christ. In other words, Advent looks back joyfully at Christ's first coming to earth, and Advent looks forward in anticipation to Christ's second coming to earth. We could say it this way. Advent doesn't end with Christ in the manger. That's actually where Advent begins. It ends, rather, at the end of the age when Christ will return. And so that is going to be our focus this morning. As we turn to God's word, we are going to set our minds and hearts upon Christ's promised second advent. And as we do so, it's worth pointing out that the passage that is in front of us, the one that I just read in your hearing, it comes from the soil of misunderstanding and mourning. What do I mean? Well, I mean that the best that we can gather from the passage is that there is some grave error, some confusion that has taken hold of the church here in Thessalonica. To put it mildly, the congregation is, to use Paul's word there in verse 13, uninformed. What's worse, this is all connected to the death of some loved ones there in the church. And I trust this is something that we can all relate to, at least to some degree or another. I say that because the church to which Paul is writing has experienced death. Christians have died, or as you see there in the text, fallen asleep, which is a a pretty common euphemism in the Scriptures for death. The fact of the matter is dads have died, and so have daughters and uncles, and grandmas. So it is here, so it was there. Christians have died, and the congregation is cut deeply by this. And so in the midst of this sorrow, uh, the Christians here in Thessalonica, they have questions. They have questions about death, and they have questions about resurrection, and really they have questions about God keeping His promises. Now, let me be quick to say, Christians can be heartbroken. Christians can grieve. Paul's words here at the end of verse 13 are not a prohibition, forbidding grief or tears or sorrow. Scripture does not read there in verse 13, you are forbidden to grieve. But what does it say? It says that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. So when we bury loved ones, we are supposed to grieve. Beloved, it would be quite unnatural if we didn't. Dare I say, inhuman. God has made us emotional creatures. And when we lose someone near and dear to us, God made us to mourn. To shed tears. Paul's point then? Well, when we grieve, we need not grieve like the world. Why? Well, the answer to this question is massively significant, and it really thrusts us into the whole tone and tenor of our passage. You ready? We don't mourn like the world, because unlike the world, we have hope. When death strikes the world, the world is plunged into utter despair. I trust you've been to funerals where non-Christians are in a box. It's hopeless. But when death strikes the Christian, the church grieves, but the church grieves with hope. Why do we have hope? Is it just wishful thinking? Are we to chalk it all up to pie in the sky by and by? Well, our hope as Christians is rooted in Christ. Just as a a vessel at sea caught in a storm is held secure by the anchor, so Christ is our anchor in the midst of the storms of death. And that is nowhere more true than when we face our own mortality or when we stand over a loved one who is in a box. Which really gets us to the promise of Christ's second advent. Here's the question we're going to think about. What is wrapped up in the the promise of Christ's second advent? Allow me to give you three words. The first word is resurrection. The promise of Christ's second advent includes resurrection. We would do well to note in our passage how our future resurrection is wed to Christ's past resurrection. Notice how Paul frames it. He declares at the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We'll circle back in a moment to the whole order of events. But for now, mark well. The dead in Christ will rise. That is to say, those who have died in faith will not stay dead. But how? Or maybe a better question is, why? Please hear this. The Christian will be resurrected. Resurrected because the Christian is so intimately joined to Christ, who himself has been resurrected. In other words, Christ's death and resurrection, it forms something of a pattern. For example, look up at verse 14. We are told, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, right? Since we believe that, what will happen to us? Well, we too who have died like Christ will rise again. So let's get this deep in our souls. Christ's second advent will be marked by resurrection. Tombs will be emptied. Graves will spit out the bodies of of the faithful. Just as Jesus Christ triumphed over death and was resurrected, so you and I are promised, we also will triumph over death and be resurrected. Which brings us to our second word, reunion. The promise of Christ's second advent entails reunion. Remember, The church here in Thessalonica is mourning the death of their loved ones. That's what verse 13 lets us know. Well, what gospel truth then will dry their eyes and comfort their hearts? Well, the gospel truth is that at Christ's second advent, there will be a wonderful and glorious and triumphant reunion. And our passage tells us that this tells us this reunion has at least three parties. You have first, those who have died in faith. Or as Paul refers to them at the end of verse 14, those who have fallen asleep. Then second, you have the Christians who are still alive at Christ's second coming. As verse 17 says, then we who are alive, who are left... And then finally, the third party, you have Christ himself. Verse 16 boldly declares, For the Lord himself will descend. Speaking of Christ, Christ himself will come. So those are the parties that make up this resurrection reunion. You have those who have died trusting Christ, those who are alive trusting Christ, and then Christ himself. So the Paul's point is that these will all be gathered together on this day in one glorious reunion. But there is an order, isn't there? Here's what Paul Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 4 about this reunion. The order goes like this. For starters, you have Christ. And Christ, of course, has already been resurrected. We know this. Three days after having died as a sacrifice for our sins, Christ was raised from the dead. Raised in glory and power and honor. He then ascended to His Father where He was crowned King of the world. And that is where He currently resides, ruling and reigning over all things until all His enemies are put under His feet, including death itself. As you continue on in this order, then you have the second resurrection, if I can put it like that. If Christ is the first resurrection, then you have the second. And this includes all those who have died in faith. Scripture is clear right now, all those who have ever died trusting in Christ and His gospel, they are right now enjoying the presence of God. It's true, their bodies are in the grave, but their spirits, that immaterial part of humanity, is present with Christ. And Paul is adamant. On this glorious day, it is those saints, our brothers and sisters who have already died, it is those saints who will experience resurrection first. Again, the end of verse 16 teaches, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So their spirits, which departed from their bodies at death, and have been in the presence of God will, at Christ's second coming, be reunited to their bodies. Now, for this to make sense, church, we have to keep something in mind. Death is an enemy, a violent and vicious intruder into God's good creation. The separation of body and soul, which is what death is, is not natural. That's not the way that it is supposed to be. I will grant to you, it is normal. It's normal because it happens all of the time. But let's be clear about this. Just because something is normal, that doesn't mean it is natural. Humans, as made in God's image, are dichotomous beings. We have a body and a soul. But the body and soul are supposed to remain together. And so long as they are separated, which again is what death is, redemption is not yet complete. Back to the order then. Notice Christ has been resurrected. The dead in Christ will be resurrected. And then third... Well, so will those saints who are still alive on that day. Think about it. This is wild. They too will instantaneously experience resurrection glory, but catch this, they will do so without ever having physically died. This is more than implied there in verse 17. After saying, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Paul adds, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. That is, with the saints who have died in Christ. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Further light is shed upon this matter in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. He tells the congregation Behold, I tell you a mystery. Okay, Paul, what is that mystery? Paul answers, we shall not all sleep, or remember, die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Maybe I can put it like this to to, to help this all make sense. Christ has died and has been resurrected. And every Christian will be resurrected. But not every Christian will die. There is one generation, the generation living during Christ's second coming, and that generation will have the unique experience of Acquiring the miracle of resurrection without ever experiencing the curse of death. But the bigger point is this. What Paul is saying, and with all of these moving parts, there is going to be a reunion. Believers who have died, believers who are alive, and Christ himself, they will all together experience resurrection reunion. In light of this then, let me mention the third and final word. Relief. The promise of Christ's second advent involves relief. Think about it. What is the whole undercurrent of our passage here? Isn't it mourning? It's grief. It's loss. It's pain. It's it's even death. But what is our hope? What is the Christian hope? Except... Resurrection glory. Think of Revelation 21. Think of Revelation 21 where John describes this spectacular scene. He he looks ahead and he sees the new heaven and the new earth. This world that Christ will usher in on this glorious day of his second advent. And John says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. If that wasn't enough, John continues, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I wonder, do you hear the hope? Do you hear the relief? Do you hear what God has promised to us, His people? He tells us that on that day, the only tears that we will cry will be the tears of joy. Death will die. Pain will be eradicated. And all the effects of the curse on that day will be reversed. That's what God promises us. That's our future. That is what the second advent of Christ is all about. You and I will experience resurrection, we will experience reunion, and we will experience relief. And catch this, all of it will be unending. That is to say, our life of resurrection glory, it will not be for a moment for a day, a week, a month, a year, but this will be our inheritance forever. And so with the promises of Christ's second advent ringing in your ears, and I trust causing your heart to sing, allow me now to shift gears ever so slightly. We've leaned into something of these promises Let's take a quick moment now to reflect upon some of the particulars. And before we do, we would do well to recognize that modern-day evangelicals, unfortunately, are prone to divide over the particulars of Christ's second coming. I'm sure this is not a shock for any of you that have been around the Christian tradition for very long. For some, the millennial view you hold quickly becomes a test of orthodoxy. Are you pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib? The answer to that question, we are told, will reveal whether or not you take the Bible seriously. And then, of course, there's a a whole host of questions that if you find yourself in the wrong situation with the wrong people, you will be accosted with, well, what about Israel? And what about the judging of angels? And what about the nature of Satan being bound? And, And most importantly, will our pets be in heaven? All of these things are enough to make Christians set their hair on fire. In all seriousness, though, those sorts of questions and our answers to them they quickly become a badge, something that we proudly wear. And then when we see other Christians perhaps wearing a different badge, we look down at them. We look down at them either as ignorant or worse. We look at our brothers and sisters with suspicion. The truth is it seems that Christians are more than reluctant to fire their guns at the world, but they will very quickly turn their nukes on one another. And that reality is not something that should cause us to strut, but to repent. So given that unfortunate reality, what I hope we can do for the next couple of minutes is is see what is clear, what is Catholic in the best sense of the word. These particulars are all things that we should all be able to agree on, and not just agree on, but celebrate. So here are four particulars that we should revel in. Number one, Christ's second coming will be personal. It will be personal. It is Christ himself, we are told, who will come for us. Not not an angel or something like that. Verse 16 is bold in its declaration. We are told, for the Lord himself, speaking of Christ, for Christ himself will descend from heaven it is Christ who will personally come why the simple answer is this Christ is king and this is his world we need to understand that his kingdom was ushered in at his first advent in fact you ever reflect upon the very first recorded words in scripture that Christ ever spoke those words are these The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Christ follows it up with, repent and believe in the gospel. So when Christ came, when the king came, so he brought with him his kingdom. And that kingdom that was inaugurated at his first advent, and which has been growing and expanding ever since... It will be consummated, beloved, at His second advent. On that day, all His enemies will forever be put under His feet. Christ is King now. But right now, His rule and reign is contested. But on that day, His rule and reign will be uncontested. Quite literally, the Scriptures tell us, every single knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Number two, Christ's advent will be physical. Perhaps this all goes without saying, but let's make sure we are on the same page here. Christ's return is not, I repeat, not something that takes place in your heart or in the church or in your home, or in your private devotions. We are not talking here about some overly spiritual, like ghostly thing that sort of happens somewhere out there in the ether. On this day, the literal Christ, the flesh and God man, He will physically return to this physical earth to physically raise the dead and physically judge the physical world. The advent of Christ will be so physical that you can see Him and touch Him and hear Him and smell Him. Remember what the the angels said to the disciples when Christ ascended after His first advent. The angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, catch this, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. So just as the first advent was utterly physical, so the second advent will likewise be utterly physical. Number three, Christ's advent will also be perceptible. It will be visible. You will see it. It will be loud. There will be no doubt about it. 1 Thessalonians leaves no room for Christ's coming being A secret it it this way it won't be like Bigfoot right where you have to convince people of its existence just so you know I'm a firm believer in Bigfoot but that's not the point the point is that everybody will know the point is there will be no doubt there will be no evangelization on that day we know this for many reasons but I trust verse 16 alone will suffice Put your eyes there once more because we are told in verse 16 that the Lord himself will descend from heaven. But notice that his descent will not be some sort of clandestine operation. This isn't some Navy SEAL op. What will attend Christ's coming? We're told still in verse 16 that Christ will come with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of The trumpet of God. If we gather anything from verse 16, it's this this is going to be loud. This is not done in secret. In fact, Christ himself will issue the summons at his return. An archangel will echo by raising his voice, and the very trumpet of God will ring out. This is no sneak attack, but rather it is an all out assault. One whereby Christ himself returns to deliver his people and to defeat his enemies. And when this happens, you will not have to get on your phone and check social media to see if you missed it. You will know. And finally, number four, Christ's second advent will be phenomenal. At this point, and I confess, language fails us. Christ's coming will be glorious and magnificent and wonderful and amazing and, and breathtaking in about a million other words. Why? Well, as we've seen, because when Christ returns, we will be resurrected. Not only that, beloved, our very world will be resurrected. And in this new world, we will see and we will know, and we will embrace our loved ones who have died in faith. On top of that, we will meet Abraham, Moses, David, and Isaiah, and Daniel, and Malachi. We will speak with John, and Peter, and Paul. Church, we will rub shoulders with Polycarp, and Athanasius, and Augustine. We will rejoice in the Gospel with the likes of Luther and Calvin, Knox and Owen, Wesley and Newton, Edwards and Spurgeon, Bavinck and Lloyd-Jones, Packer and Sproul. Most significantly, we will actually behold Jesus Christ. And we will do so not through glass dimly, but actually face to face. Consider this just as Adam walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, so too we will enjoy the blessed presence of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, we ought to rejoice. We ought to rejoice because this is our destiny. And all of this and about a thousand other graces were all one for you and I in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All those gifts of grace were purchased for you. Beloved, glory itself was purchased for you in the very blood of Jesus. So step back with me. Let's get a lay of the land as we conclude this Advent season. And as we do so, I would invite you to glance in both directions. Look back to the first Advent, to Christ coming to you and for you. Catch a glimpse of of Him there, born in the manger, born in utter poverty, that He might bestow upon you the riches of heaven. See Him there, meriting, righteous for you, perfectly obeying every single law of God that you failed to do. Behold Him there, dying your death under the judgment of God. See Him take into the grave all of your sin and then burst forth without your sin in glory on the third day. Look back, Christian, and see that this has all been done and that all that God calls you to do is to rest in your Savior. But at the same time, glance the other direction. Look forward to the second advent for Christ will again come to you and come for you. With the eyes of faith, lay hold of the promises that He has made, promises of resurrection, Promises of reunion. Promises of relief. And as you look forward, and as you do so, I trust, like me, with faulty and fickle faith, remember that the second Advent is the most sure reality in all of the world. In fact, it is just as sure as the first Advent. In fact, it's more sure because the first Advent guarantees the second you and I have more reason to believe in Christ's second coming than we do the sun rising tomorrow. And none of us will lose sleep tonight thinking that the sun's not going to crest over the horizon in the morning. And so as you look backward and as you look forward, the question might very well enter your mind, what about now? What about right now? In the middle of Christ's first and second Advents, what am I supposed to do And the answer from Scripture this morning is this. We ought to be a people of hope. Hope is the blood that ought to flow through our veins. And I say that because I would have you put your eyes on verse 18 and see how Paul concludes this section. He says in verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. With what words? What are these words? Beloved, these are the words that we've been looking at this morning. What is before us in the pages of Holy Scripture are words of hope and words of promise. And these words, as verse 18 calls them, they ought to encourage your soul and stoke the fires of your heart and supply assurance to your otherwise anxious mind. Unfortunately, though, it is not uncommon for these words to have been misused and abused. Not uncommon for the the prospect of the second coming of Christ to be a source of anxiety, of fear, of downright discouragement for Christians. This is because some Christians will fear that they will be left behind. Have they read their Bible enough? Have they prayed hard enough? Have they conquered that one sin satisfactorily enough? Others are worried that they are actually false professors and not Christians at all. After all, they still sin. And they still even struggle with doubting sometimes. Still more are concerned that that maybe they're Christians, but they're probably not good Christians. And that's because they're plagued with questions like, well, did I bear enough fruit? Or have I experienced enough joy? Or, the most terrifying of all, have I mastered enough of those end time charts I see at the Bible bookstore? The church, hear me well. The prospect of Christ's second advent is intended to provoke not fear in you, but faith. Looking forward to Christ's return ought to breed hope in us. Not horror. Comfort. Not concern. Encouragement. Not embarrassment. Back to verse 18. We are to encourage one another with these words. Every single syllable we've seen this morning, Christian, is intended by the Spirit of God to enrich your faith, stir your soul. And encourage your heart. It's not intended to cause you to walk on eggshells in utter fear about the prospect of Christ's return. So redeeming grace, take heart this Advent. Take, he- take heart even now as we embark upon this new year. And remember that Christ's first Advent was to save unworthy sinners like you. And Christ's second Advent is no different be encouraged, find joy, lean into hope. Christ has promised that He will come again and that He will come to you and that He will come for you. And when He does, He will not come to you as judge or prosecutor or bully. Well, Christ will come to you as Savior, as Redeemer, as your elder brother, as your dearest friend. Join with me in prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that your spirit would be in the business of fixing our hearts and our minds and our very eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that we would love him and that we would trust him and where we don't, that you would encourage us and that you would sustain us. We pray that this Advent season will have been uh, one that has been good for the souls of this church. We pray that you would strengthen us. We pray that you would enable us to further believe in the promises that you have made to us. And we pray that we would put no confidence in the flesh but that we would trust entirely upon the Lord Jesus. We pray now that you would be pleased, Father, to continue to make us more like him and to encourage us even as we prepare to come to the table and have communion with one another and with him. We ask that you would do all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we prepare to gather around the table this morning, we do so clinging to Christ and to his promises. And the promise that I want us to lean into right now is this. Christ will come again for you. Christian, He has not forgotten about you. He's not washed His hands of you. He's not fed up with you or indifferent to you. Truth is, right now, even in these very moments, you are on the heart of your Savior. And He, like you, longs for the day of redemption when you will be with Him. And so as we eat and drink together this morning, as we chew the the bread of His body and drink the cup of His blood, look back. Look back to the cross and what He did to save you. And look forward as well to His promised return when He will gather you to Himself. That's what this meal is in a lot of ways. It's, It's something of a foretaste. It's something of an appetizer. Really, it's a rehearsal. As we prepare for the day in which we will eat this same meal with Christ in glory, face to face. That's what he's promised us. That's what he's bought for us in his death. And that's what he pledges to us even now at his table. Let's pray once more. Our Father, we gather in your presence with gratitude for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice on the cross where he offered himself as a perfect and atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we look forward to the day in which we will see him face to face. As we partake of this bread symbolizing his broken body for us and this cup symbolizing his blood shed for us, we ask your blessing upon this congregation. Bless, sanctify, and consecrate this time of holy communion. And may it strengthen our faith nourish our souls, renew our commitment to Christ, and empower us to live as his faithful disciples. We give you thanks and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers, in a brief moment, brothers and sisters, rather, forgive me, I'm going to call you forward up out of your seat and invite you to receive the elements. Good standing.